The National School Boards Association sends a letter to the Biden administration last month, end of September, begging for federal law enforcement to use domestic terrorism laws to target parents for investigation. And uh, uh, these parents would be those who oppose the mask mandates, right? That That's what's prompting a lot of this stuff. A lot of the interactions at the school board meetings, it's about the mask policies and it's about critical race theory. And so the school boards are uh, very upset, very upset that parents are mad. How dare they? I mean, they're used to parents being mad about, you know, sending their kid to a particular school or you know, the calendar not lining up with their vacation plans or something. But this is a whole different level because now you got parents like who are actually upset. They're actually mad about this stuff, like really mad about this stuff. And they're coming down and they're yelling and screaming. And the school board that usually talks to parents, talks to adults as if they're talking to children and parents who are grown adults for the most part, they don't like that either. It's one of the things that has driven me nuts. I when I was in, uh, I, I went to college uh, right across the border there at Winthrop University, and thought for a brief period of time that hey, you know what, maybe I'll go be a teacher. And so I took some of the classes over at the Winthrop uh, Education College, which is like very good. I was told right, like that was what Winthrop used to be. They were a training school for teachers and the like. They have a lot of programs over there. And so I went over and took a couple classes, and oh my God, gouged my eyeballs out with pencils. It was so bad. I could not look. I'm, and I'm sure it's fine. I'm not knocking the program because I don't know anything about it. I'm sure it's like fully accredited and all that. If you want to be a teacher, go for it. But for me, being talked to like I'm a first grader, I, I have no patience for that. Zero patience for that. And my experience has been as an adult that I get talked to like that by educators. And I don't know if it's because they hang out with kids all day and that, you know, they have a captive audience of people that are supposed to listen to them. And so they they have like, I mean, you know, every every new parent knows this, right? You got to get away from the babies, especially if you got a bunch of them, got a bunch of young kids, right? You forget how to talk to adults. I, I kind of wonder if some of that goes on <laughs> because sometimes I encounter some of these People who are just steeped in the educratic establishment and they talk to like like elected officials. They talk to parents like they're four-year-olds. It's very condescending. And uh, I suspect it doesn't go over very well with parents who are very upset. When you show up and you're like, hey, I have a bunch of scientific studies here that show mask effectiveness, particularly among children, is not worth it. The juice is not worth the squeeze, shall we say, right? More cost than benefit. So we shouldn't be using these mask uh, mandates. And you get from these elected officials, well, that's what the science and data says. And that's it. And that's their explanation. That's their defense. And they have, they have nothing else to offer in order to persuade the parents that they're wrong. And the parent is armed with actual science and data they're armed with facts they're not armed with the safer nc schools toolkit from dr mandy cohen they got a little bit more information than just the bullet points offered up with the the helpful graphics i mean they have cartoons 
They got like pie charts too. You could see some charts. Look at that. Oh, it's a pie chart. Shows all of the kids going to school with the masks and how happy they are. Yay. Well, you can't really see how happy they are because they're wearing masks. But like that's the idea. And the parents who show up and try to engage in a rational, intellectual way are not satisfied, shall we say, with the level of the discussion. So the N, the N I keep wanting to say NSBA or the uh, NCSBA, but the, you know, the National SBA, the NSBA School Board Association claimed that federal action was warranted to deal with the growing number of threats of violence and acts of intimidation occurring across the nation. And so what Ted Cruz is asking the attorney general, did you do any research on any of these instances? What were you aware of before you sent out this memo directing the marshalling of forces of all of these federal agencies? Did you look into any of this stuff? Monica points out, like, did they do any research? No, they didn't even read the letter. <laughs> uh, Dave says on Twitter, Pete, thanks for the uh, for playing the Senate sound bites. I appreciate it. Um, let me see. I got to read the hang on. My former co-workers who has kids were the worst. Also, the one female assistant who would call me hun. Because in the North, that's the word we use. What? No, they don't all use that word up North. That's, no, I don't know what that is. Yeah, they, so yeah, Monica has some experience with the, the condescending uh, speech. If they don't want to hear the parents and taxpayers uh, while they are trying to conduct business, maybe they should have more community meetings devoted to doing just that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is part of the, the issue here. You got, uh, you know, they try to restrain and constrain the public hearing portions. They don't want the public input during a lot of these meetings. And then, you know, the other side of that is that there are a lot of people that show up and they talk about everything. They talk on every agenda item and they use every bit of their allotted time. And they say stuff that other people have said and they say stuff that is irrelevant they go down there to hear themselves talk. These are generally the people that run for office, too, all the time and never win, right? They pull like 0.001% of the vote, and they show up at every school board, every city council, every county commission meeting. They show up at like like the Mumpo meetings or the MTC meetings and talk, right? That Yeah, exactly. So there are a lot of people that think they have really, really important things to say, and they do not. And so I get it. I understand. But if you are, if you are not interested in listening to people come down and give you their opinions about policy and such, then don't run for the office. But you could also do, you know, public listening uh, uh, sessions, right? You could do like for town forum, town hall forums, kind of stuff like that. And just open it up like a, like an open line Friday. You could do something like that, right? Just let people come in and talk. Um, most of the incident examples that were in this letter from the school boards association that was used to justify intervention by the White House did not escalate to a level that even yielded arrests or charges on the local level, which is a pretty important point. The letter cites all of these examples of you know threatening behavior and, oh my God, I'm so scared, behavior and None of them resulted in charges, which to me kind of undercuts the point 
that you're trying to make that you were in fear that, that violence was breaking out all over the place when it wasn't, right? But only a couple days after the letter gets sent, the DOJ, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, directs the FBI and U.S. attorneys to address, quote, a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff who participate in the vital work of running our nation's public schools. Dozens of state school board associations then reported that they were not consulted before that original letter went out by the board of uh, uh, the school boards association, and uh, they have even voted to withdraw their membership from the national chapter. Uh, because the president of that National School Boards Association and the CEO, Chip Slavin, colluded with the White House before releasing their official demands. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Let me go over here and play this audio. This is Senator Tom Tillis. By the way, there's a breaking news story here on um, Senator Richard Burr and the SEC. Remember um, his uh, his stock moves that he did right before the pandemic? Yeah, he dumped all that stock. And then he called his brother-in-law. Apparently his brother-in-law called his stockbroker literally one minute after <laughs> Burr called him. So uh, the SEC says that Senator Burr had material non-public information regarding COVID's economic impact. Now, Burr said, of course, remember at the time that uh, that he did not. All of this stuff was from, uh, what's his face, the guy with the crazy bells and whistles on uh, CNBC, right? Kramer, right? Isn't that his name? Anyway, uh, so I'll, I'll take a look at that story. ProPublica has it. But let me get to Tom Tillis. He was also at the uh, hearing yesterday with Merrick Garland, and here was what he had to say. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, thank you for being here. You know, in, in response to the, the memo, uh, I know you've repeatedly said this is not about parents. Fifteen years ago, I was PTA president my daughter's high school. I uh, participated in a lot of school board meetings, and I still watch it on public access back in Mecklenburg County when oh. I'm home. Um, Nerd. The- <laughs> Wait a minute. He says, That's what I do. <laughs> well, I don't think I watch the school board meetings. I watch city and county, though. And that's That's my cross to bear. The basis for your memo was substantially the letter that you all received. Is that correct? That was an important part yeah. of it. Yes, Senator. Do you uh, I mean, do you think there was an empirical... I, I've seen some of the widely reported uh, situations in uh, some school board meetings, but is there really any empirical basis for... I've seen a lot of raucous school board meetings. I've participated in them. Uh, is there really any empirical basis? Did the DOJ do any real work outside of the public reporting to say that there's a disturbing trend that required the kind of uh, what we consider to be overreach on, part, on behalf of the DOJ? So uh, as I've explained, um, what we looked at was the letter for, um, from an organization that represents thousands of uh, school board members and school boards and public reports of um, threats of violence. And, and even since then, I have further read um, quite expressed um, threats of violence well, being it, reported. Mr. Uh, but, Attorney General, I want to try and keep in time and deference yeah, to my, my colleagues behind me. But um, I, I do. I know that you've said it's not about the parents. Um, but when the DOJ releases the memo, and I think even more importantly, the, uh, the press statement, I think that it does have the, a chilling effect on parents being willing to go and express their concerns with the direction the school board's going. 
when all of a sudden you think that your words and this list of of uh, crimes that uh, the department has sent, I guess, to at least the state of Montana, others, uh, it could have a chilling effect on people who legitimately have a concern and they want to express it. But now they, they may think that they come crosswise with the FBI. Um, so I do believe that it will have a chilling effect on people whose right they have to go in, express their concerns, like a Loudoun County, a, a, a ridiculous overreach. Um, I think that it will have that effect because the full force of the FBI is now something a parent has to think about before they go before a school board meeting to express their concerns and they get frustrated. Like I said, they've been raucous for decades and they will be raucous for decades to come. Um, so I do, I, I really do believe that you should seriously consider rescinding, revising um, the, a statement out there that concerns me for the parents that I want to show up to school board meetings and have the school boards held accountable. The other thing that we should talk about are the numerous examples of school board members getting caught saying audacious, audacious things. There's one thing you've seen over the past year. Think about some of the provocative statements that they said. They thought they were behind closed doors, but they were on the internet uh, basically ridiculing parents and uh, pretending like they had ball control over their their children's education and their future. Uh, we've got to get more parents engaged, and I think that the effect of the DOJ action is the exact opposite of that. But m most of my colleagues have covered my concerns. There you go. So that was U.S. Senator Tom Tillis during the hearing yesterday. By the way, I got a, uh, an email from Jason who asked uh, whether the uh, State School Board Association here in North Carolina has stated its opinion on this. And uh, according to Defending Education... Freedom is that? Hang on a second. Let me scroll back up here. This is yeah. Def, uh, Parents defending education is uh, the organization, and they they've got a list of all of the um, the state school board associations that have weighed in on all of this. And North Carolina School Board Association has they put out a statement that said that they had no role in creating that letter to President Biden. They said, we were not privy to any drafts of or conversations about the letter prior to its release. The North Carolina Association does not agree with the tone or language in the letter, nor the request for federal agencies to intervene in our communities. I have written to both NSBA President Garcia and NSBA Interim Executive Director Chip Slavin, uh, conveying the association's disagreement with the letter's tone and contents. The North Carolina School Boards Association strongly believes that students, parents, and community members should and need to be able to voice their opinions. There should be no place in our public discourse for criminal acts and blah, 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 blah. No harassment, right? All of the obligatory stuff like don't do bad things, treat people right. But they, they uh, are not on board with that. I mentioned earlier the IRS. Um, in 2009, a national grassroots movement known as the Tea Party emerged in cities across the country to combat then-President Obama's radical spending agenda and the government takeover of the American healthcare industry. Katie Pavlich writes about this at TheHill.com. We'll get into that up next. First, oh, Dean. <laughs> I just opened up the email. I got a couple of them here from uh, Dean. A couple, uh, well, the first one here, he says, subject line, be honest. You are laughing because it is not the facts. He's talking about the Ted Cruz exchange with Merrick Garland. It's not the facts, but how you align the facts. The Cruz excerpt 
wasn't about Democrats or Republicans being right or wrong, but a clear example of why people dislike attorneys and politicians. And that kind of when I said, I'm trying to remember what I said, because I was laughing during it. I guess Dean sent this, yeah, it was like 102. And no, I guess that would have been after it was done. I mean, I, I, I thought I pointed out that that's what that's how lawyers talk, like that's how they engage with each other. I said it's kind of like children, and then I talked about how when I was in, yeah, 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 I, I remember that. I'm old enough to remember that. It was like 40 minutes ago. I went through all of that. Yeah, Dean. All of these hearings that they hold now are designed specifically to give these lawmakers a soundbite that goes viral. That's the point. Yeah, I mean, that's not, and and that's not, um, it's a bipartisan observation, but it's not particularly newsworthy or earth shattering. I thought everybody was kind of, I don't know, clued into that. We all caught on to that by now. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what what Merrick Garland did, and I mean, I get the sense that Dean doesn't like Ted Cruz. Well, let me read the second one here. The subject line is Cruz, all caps. What you showed was Cruz can use sound bites as good as the Democrats. Yeah, okay. But not really, because the Democrats then took one of the uh, portions of his comments and they spread that around, hashtag fake news. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, sure. What did uh, Aaron Rupar, that uh, awful human being, he said, uh, shorn of context or something like that, as he spreads video clips shorn of context. Um, but I think it's pretty clear what happened. Don't you think it's pretty clear what happened and what is happening? You have a uh, a Department of Justice, just like with Eric Holder, and for folks who don't remember or weren't old enough to pay attention or just didn't pay attention to uh, the uh, the machinations of the Obama administration, then maybe this, I don't know, is, is all new to you. But for me, no. I, re- I remember that, like, I was literally sitting in this very same spot in 2009 when the rise of the Tea Party occurred. When... The Tea Party organizations got targeted by the IRS. I remember this. Um, yeah, the, the Eric Holder's Department of Justice, you're, you're talking about a guy who called himself Obama's wingman. Um, Katie Pavlich, she's a, a contributor over at The Hill, and... She is the editor for townhall.com, also a Fox News contributor. And uh, she talks about this in her column today. Bureaucrats at the IRS and the Department of Justice uh, took notice of the rise of the Tea Party and they went to work to stop it. He had midterm elections that were right around the corner in 2010. Um, and, you know, they look, they know. Everybody in the administration knows. Everybody kept looking for, like, oh, where's the smoking gun email? You know, did Obama tell the IRS to do this? Yes, he did. But he didn't direct them in an email. There was no smoking gun email, you know, from Obama that says, you know, dear Lois, or to whom it may concern in the IRS, please target the Tea Party because they may harm my chances uh, for uh, reelection or Democrats' chances for reelection in the midterms. There didn't have to be an email like that. He was saying it on the stump, right? Obama was going around giving speeches. He did his State of the Union speech, 
where he talked about the Supreme Court Citizen United case. And and it like the bat signal went out. Hey, Tea Party groups, these things, they're all sprouting up all over the place. And, you know, we don't know where all this money's coming from, this dark money, where it's all coming from and all that. It's been a while. It's been over a decade. But, like, I recall this occurring. I remember the details very vividly. The IRS officials in D.C. claimed that the targeting was isolated. Remember this? It was just, it was limited to a rogue operation in Cincinnati. Remember that? Oh, yeah, it was just a couple of, and then they planted the story in uh, uh, with, with, a, uh, with a reporter that was friendly so they could get it out there. They could get ahead of this story. So they planted it in a Q&A with Lois Lerner so they could kind of get ahead of it and start to craft the narrative ahead of time. But because documents show the IRS was asked by Senators Sheldon Whitehouse and Representative Elijah Cummings to look into the groups. Right on cue, IRS official Lois Lerner had a series of meetings with DOJ officials about how to criminally prosecute conservative groups with a goal of making them an example. Groups applying for tax-exempt status with the words Tea Party or Patriot in their titles got singled out for extra scrutiny. One IRS prosecution would make an impact and they wouldn't feel so comfortable doing this stuff. That's what Lois Lerner said in a 2013 email. To make an example of a couple of groups so other groups wouldn't feel comfortable. That's the point. Lerner said that the Tea Party matter is very dangerous. It was obvious the IRS was attempting to quash political dissent. Lerner eventually admitted that the targeting was wrong, forced into retirement, and then the IRS lost thousands of her emails. Yeah. You want to know why people on the right believe there is a thing called a deep state? You want to know why? This is why. We saw this happen. We saw bureaucrats engage in political targeting of Democrat opponents and then be allowed to retire and then have all of their emails destroyed. Okay, how about a little bit more reason? Okay, 2009. Oh, Pete, that was so, you know, 10 years ago. None of those people are still around. None of those, that's ah, just all, this old history. Okay, how about 2016? A little bit more recent, five years ago, right? A couple of uh, politically motivated FBI agents swapping out some text messages in between the spit and their disdain for former President Trump is evident. The FBI folks then use a, a fake, uh, well, let's put a, a file, uh, or how about a, a dossier, we'll call it, that's paid for and commissioned by the Clinton campaign to go after Hillary Clinton's political opponent. Right? All those people have skated. Now that Democrats are back in charge at DOJ, the political weaponization of the agency has returned and concerned parents now are the target. Why? Because it's a grassroots effort that's what scares them the most if bad traffic scares you listen up here's boomer von cannon he'll help you avoid it all right oh hey i got i got a bone to pick with you first sure yes sir all of those references to hill street and no not one reference not one you couldn't work in one time hill street blues should have shouldn't i 
I'm just saying, missed opportunity. Should. Yeah, it is. It sure. <laughs> Hill Street Blues, one of the great shows, man. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's for the kids. <laughs> NBC TV's Hill Street Blues. That's the uh, theme song. Ryan has no knowledge of this. He's 34. So what? So at least according to this, it says that they used this theme from 1981 to 1987. I was born in 1987. Yeah. So wait. So, how, so wait. How long was the show on? I don't know. I, I mean, I was a kid. I mean, I was... So in 87, I would have been... 15? 15? Yeah, I didn't care. Um, but this was... no. So this was... But it was a groundbreaking TV show. Um, it wasn't the first police procedural drama or the first ensemble cast. Um... The show was the first to amalgamate these elements into an ongoing saga that broke the bounds of what TV viewers considered to be drama and expanded into its own strange hybrid of entertainment that included drama, tragedy, music, action, family situations, intense violence, social commentary, superheroes, and gut-busting laughter. (laughs) Yeah, like that. Kind of like that. Exactly. I I I don't recognize anyone from this cast, by the way, either. The show was such a critical success and ultimately a commercial success that its Thursday at 10 p.m. time slot became a constant for the expectation of excellence. Hill Street Blues was the first 10 p.m. anchor of NBC's must-see TV. There you go. That was the lineup. It then got um, followed by L.A. Law, Homicide, Life on the Street, and then ER, and Southland, and... And then the Jay Leno show, which ruined that streak. But whatever. Um, (laughs) And then it got bookended by Cheers and Night Court and Family Ties, Taxi, The Cosby Show. Sorry, did not mean to trigger anybody with that name. Fame, We're Going to Live Forever, right? That was it. Hill Street Blues, like that was it. And then um, it, it basically influenced every other cop show after that. NYPD Blue, The Shield. Saint Elsewhere, which was the the hospital show, yeah. Um, they also did like they used like a lot of it used different kinds of cameras, and that was like a big deal. Anyway, just reading off of this website, Pop Matters. Oh, here we go. Here's the one. This is the one. Lloyd, welcome. Hey, hey, what's going on? May, uh, may I approach the throne? Rico found the cow on the tenth floor of a tenement building. They called in a helicopter and the fire department. Wait, rigged, uh, wasn't, no, 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 no. That was an episode of the Andy Griffin show. No, no, they rigged the sling with the fire hose and no. attached it to the helicopter. No, definitely and Andy next, Griffin. And the next scene was Rico explaining, I don't know what happened, the cow must kick loose, gone wild or something. And there were cow parts all over the street below. No. Cars have been crushed. So that's like a, uh, is that like a, a redo of the uh, the flying turkeys from WKRP? 
right? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's yeah. good to be old, I tell you what. Yeah, well, uh, look, I was a kid. We were not allowed to stay up that late to watch that show. I just remember that we had the 45. Like, the music, the intro was, like, you could hear that song played on the radio. That was such a popular show. Yeah, yep. you're you're the fan though. You're the the you're still the fan. I was the connoisseur. Yes, well, Stanley Griffith too. But uh, yeah, he he and uh, Barney and um, what was that guy's name? Al Gore, the drunk that always went crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's him exactly. All right, uh, Lloyd. I appreciate the call, man. Thank you, Stephen Botchko and Michael. Kazal. Stephen Bochko was the name. God, that guy that guy's name was on like everything, along with the other one. Stephen J. Cannell or Cannell. C A N N. See, now we watched uh The Greatest American Hero. Classic. Loved it. I love that theme. Uh yeah, Joey Scarborough. Uh Scar Joey S- wait, is it Scarbury or Scarborough? Joe Scarborough is the, yeah, he's the morning Joe guy, Scarbury. Um, yeah, yeah, believe it or not, I'm walking on air. That song also went on the radio. Look, I mean, we like there's a lot of great music over the course of my life. There it is. Yeah, yeah. But this was also a song you could hear on the radio. Suddenly I'm on top of the world. <laughs> Connie Selica, Bill Culp, right? And William Catt. They actually had to change his name in the show. His name was Ralph Hinckley. And he was a teacher. And he had to, and so there was a scene at the beginning of the credits, whatever, and he he was at the chalkboard. He'd be writing his name on the board. They had to change his name for like a season or two to Hunkle. They changed it to Ralph Hunkel. You know why? Why? Here's a trivia question Vince Coakley didn't ask you today. Hinkley? The guy that tried to shoot Reagan? Or Yeah, did shoot Reagan. Yeah. And they didn't want Ralph Hinkley to be associated with the guy who tried to murder Ronald Reagan. Everybody loved Reagan. Oh, those were days, man. And so then, yeah, so they changed this character's name in the show for like a season or something. Because we made so many jokes about it, like Hunkle. And then what was the FBI director? Uh, uh, Carlisle. That was the boss's name. There were some great episodes. So the premise of the show, I don't know how I got on this topic. The premise of that show was, uh, was a great idea, which was a superhero, right? There's like some alien spaceship. And they come down and they give Ralph this spacesuit but he loses or they don't give him the instruction booklet and so he doesn't know how to use the suit and hilarity ensues and uh, so you know he's always he's got the suit under his uh under his clothes or something and he's always trying to change into it and he like so there are all sorts of jokes about you know superman using the telephone booth and all that stuff and, uh, yeah, so that was the deal, that he didn't have the instruction manual, so he could never fly correctly, he could never land correctly, he had all these powers that he didn't know he could utilize, and things would just happen, and then, like, Bill Culp was the FBI handler guy, and so Bill was always trying to get him to do stuff for the government, and but he couldn't tell Carlisle, the boss, about the superhero and all that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I'm on this. I don't want to stay on this. 
But it was a great show. It was a very great show. Um, speaking of the FBI, the Attorney General, <laughs> Eric Garland, or uh, Merrick Garland, was at the uh, Senate Judiciary uh, Committee yesterday. Oh, I had, oh, hang on a second. I had another email, I think. Let me see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, school boards, here we go. Kathy, I think, is this, uh, yeah. I read that certain school boards are simply changing the rules pertaining to meetings, rules against crowd noise and applause and outbursts, um, not allowed to address a specific board member or employee. You're only allowed to speak on a subject on the agenda. You got to give your name and address before speaking. Okay, this is true. Also, not uh, not new. It's true, but also these tactics have been in play for a long time. Um, I remember when they first started doing the hands, the jazz hands, in the uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg School uh, Board meetings when they were doing like student reassignment. This was like 15 years ago. And they were doing jazz hands because it's the sign language for applause. And so rather than doing this and interrupting a speaker, everybody could just raise your hands and jazz hands, everybody. And then uh, the speaker doesn't lose their time. So... All right, we'll get into more of this up next. Sign language and jazz hands.